Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Alexander Nemirov is the author of Fierce Poise, Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York. Alexander is a professor in the Arts and Humanities Department at Stanford University. Before joining the faculty at Stanford, he was a professor in the Department of the History of Art at Yale University from 2001 to 2012. A scholar of American art, he writes about the presence of art, the recollection of the past, and the importance of humanities in our lives today. He's the author of Soulmaker, The Times of Lewis Hine, Silent Dialogues, Diane Arbus, and Howard Nemirov, Wartime Kiss, Visions of the Moment in the 1940s, Acting in the Night, Macbeth, and Places of the Civil War, Icons of Grief, Val Luton's Homefront Pictures, The Body of Raphael Peel, Still Life and Selfhood, I'm going to keep going with his books here, and Frederick Remington and Turn of the Century America. He has curated exhibitions including To Make a World, George Alt, and 1940s America. 
among Professor Nemirov's recent essays are meditations on Charles Birchfield, Winslow Homer, Dennis Miller, Bunker, Helen Frankenthaler, Joe Rosenthal, Gregory Crudson, Danny Lyon, William Eggleston, and Grandma Moses. His most recent books are Summoning Pearl Harbor and Soulmaker, The Times of Lewis Hine. And he is now writing his next book, The Forest, A Fable of America in the 1830s, to be published by Princeton University Press, based on the Andrew W. Mellon lectures he gave at the National Gallery in 2017. Welcome, Alexander. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's my pleasure. I am really excited to talk to you about Fierce Poise. Look at this beautiful book about Helen Frankenthaler and 1950s New York. Gorgeous. Congratulations on the story. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I have to tell you that my mother is like a massive Helen Frankenthaler fan and like- Is that right? Like obsessed with everything about her. And so when I got your galley way back when, I was like, oh my gosh, mom, you have to read this. So mm-hmm. she loved it. And anyway, so I've been hearing about Helen Frankenthaler my whole life. So I'm delighted to talk to you uh, about the book today. So why have you decided to write a whole book about Helen Frankenthaler? Are you also a huge fan and have you been forever? Well, you know, Zibi, I think I've been hearing about Helen Frankenthaler my whole life too, in a but in a slightly different way, which is to say Helen Frankenthaler went to Bennington College and her senior year was my dad's first year there as a professor. And She, Helen, took a class with him, and I guess they stayed in touch over the years, periodically. I certainly recall her name when I was growing up. I was born in Bennington, though we moved soon after that, but suffice it to say that she'd long been in the back of my mind. Then I began to just be aware how much I loved her paintings, and sometimes when I write about artists, the the reason for the liking, and there is no other reason to write about art unless you have strong feelings about it. So that's a given. But in, in sometimes the strong feelings, the reason for them is, is manifest right in a moment. Other times it takes longer. And I think, as I say in the book, I really needed to catch up to Helen and understand why her paintings moved me. And you know, Zibi, what I ended up coming away with was in choosing intuitively to write about the art she made in her 20s, you know, when she was just starting, because the book is about taking her from just after her graduation from Bennington to up to the age of 31, when she had her first one-person exhibition, is that I wanted to understand, value, love all the more Helen's way of portraying what it's like to be a young person and to, we all know how intense being in our 20s is. And I think Helen was someone who lived that intensity in a very powerful way and moreover had the power to portray it on the wing, on the quick, life as lived, translated into aesthetic form. And I didn't necessarily, I was still... I had all those feelings, but I wasn't able to translate it into art and genuine feeling in quite the way that she was. So I think better late than never. Glad I caught up to her in my 50s. (laughs) You know, although Helen died in 2011, I feel like we could probably have a decent conversation about her art where she alive now. Wow. And I love how you portray her as just, it's almost like 
she's just another girl in her twenties in New York. And like, what uh-huh. she can, you know what I mean? It's like, and yet she becomes yeah. this legend. You have the scene, like when she was feeling depressed, you said, you know, starting around New Year's 1953, Helen became depressed. She was paying sick calls to her mother who was increasingly ill. You talk about a bunch of other things here, blah, blah, blah. A New York Times critic gave faint praise to her heart and soul efforts, including her favorite, The Vast Mountains and Sea. The works were fresh, pale, and pleasant, sweet, and unambitious. And then you said, sinking into lethargy, Helen found herself thinking that in her whole life, nothing mattered very much. Even her psychoanalytic sessions, on which she usually placed great store, struck her as boring. She was, quote, (laughs) not taking my life or myself or life or plans too seriously, not caring enough. She found herself taking afternoon naps. The sleep is wonderful, but the habit bothers me. And you just, you said Helen was depressed because she felt like her life was at a standstill. So take me back to like that moment in in her history and how that became a turning point. Yes. Well, if there's one painting people might know of Helen's off the top of their head, it would be the painting you're talking about, Mountains and Sea, which she painted in one day, one afternoon, October 26, 1952. And although that painting now hangs in the National Gallery in Washington and has been there for a number of years, at the time, as the Times Review indicates, it was met with disdain, not just by art reviewers, but by Helen's fellow artists who thought it wasn't, I don't know, serious and angsty enough. And she was kind of lectured to by the artist Larry Rivers and also privately her friend uh, or sometimes frenemy Grace Hardigan was very critical of that painting too. But Helen never really doubted that picture. You know, she said the lightest touch is always the hardest one. And that's something I've really learned from her. You know, we can think you, me, anyone that gravity, intensity, depth, as we say, is always the sole road, the royal road to seriousness, profundity. But Helen really brought me to appreciate, to value the quality of lightness, of air, of atmosphere, which that picture is so much about. And, you know, pleasure poised on a balance as ephemeral, full of grace, all of these things is what she portrayed. She knew to spend any more time on it would be to ruin it. But her lethargy, Zibby, had to do with precisely what she says. She wasn't sure even if she should be an artist anymore, even though she was really born to be an artist. She even interviewed kind of half-heartedly for a job at Time Life, though she was really put off by the starchy intellectualism of the whole Time Life building. She also was invited to help campaign for Adlai Stevenson because that painting was made just a 10 days or so before the presidential election that Eisenhower won in a landslide over Stevenson. So she was thinking about different options. And then at the moment you describe, her show had gone up. She was still very proud of her paintings. No one was buying them. The reviews were diffident. Her fellow artists were suspicious. She was depressed for reasons beyond that. You know, part of what I say about being the 20s being an intense time as people, including Helen, are working out a lot of stuff or not working it out uh, or both. And the depression, I think, was something that happened to her as it happens to many people unbidden. In that part of the book, I talk about her going to see this late Charlie Chaplin film called Limelight 
in which there's a very beautiful ballerina who looks remarkably like Helen. She's pictured in the book and Helen, not surprisingly, identified with this ballerina who, you know what, had this kind of psychosomatic illness that convinced her she couldn't get out of bed that, you know, just like Helen, you know, basically taking long naps and this feeling of illness and inadequacy was precisely related to her talent, you know, precisely related. If you watch a movie, which is wonderful, I think, to her incredibly rare ability as a dancer. So the same goes for Helen, which is to say, you know what, Zibi, when we talk about an artist, we use that word artist. I think even me, whose job it is to talk about artists, can sometimes use that term very glibly, when in fact, it's a very mysterious term. And in Helen's case, it means there's a tremendous amount of energy, volatile emotion that is in there that is driven sometimes almost too fast for one's own liking by a relentless pursuit of aesthetic form. You know, I must make a picture. I cannot not make a picture. And that's that's a volatile thing to handle and not everyone can handle it well. Helen made it through, you know, without dumbing down or numbing down all of the different emotions from laughter to despair that her work portrays. You know, it's so interesting because I feel like writers are a type of artist and I think so many writers feel the same way, right? They just have to write it down or they have to create and they have to, you know, dedicate their whole lives to sitting in in front of the computer on their sketch pad and trying to create at the expense of everything else, sort of similar to what you're saying. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. About Helen and like, there's so many people who are driven that way. And I'm wondering if you as a writer, because obviously, you know, there's so much research and you're like such a renowned sort of scholar of all of this material, but you're all, you know, as a writer, do you feel pulled to be doing this type of writing yourself? Yes, I do. I think I'm much happier when I have written something in a day. 
and it balances sort of structures my life. And it is, so I imagine, not just a matter of mental equilibrium, but also, you know, one is trying to make contact with life, right? To use words like Helen used paintings to portray what it is to be alive. And, you know, not in some universal sense, but precisely from the contingent, partial, limited vantage that one calls one's own. And yet the hope is that that perspective, that subjectivity, we call it, is not merely subjective, but is precisely by being so specific, accessible to other people, right? So with Helen, I've never tried to write a kind of doorstop or omniscient biography. I've kind of used my own feeling for her work as my pathway into it and hopefully not deviated from that at all. So as you know, each each chapter of the book is is about one single day in her life from the year 1950 to the year 1960. It's kind of unabashedly partial in that way too, but it's also true to Helen's art in the sense that she, like me, would suggest that, you know, anytime you're writing a sentence or putting paint on a canvas, you are presumably trying to do something that is not the same as ordinary life, not walking down the street or mailing a letter or whatever the case may be. And it's a religious conception of art in her case, which I'm attracted to, which is to say you make a painting in order to reveal something about the world. And that revelation is not didactic. It is not moralistic. It is instead kind of sensory and specific to feelings that are almost impossible to describe, but, you know, feelings like lightness, lift, sorrow, you know, feelings that we have, of course, handy words for, but words that are just finely placeholders, you know. So Helen is someone who's pushing paint to be able to portray states of mind, states of being, even just the feeling of walking down the street with the light kind of dappling through the shadows of the trees in a way that doesn't kill those experiences, but makes them live, makes them visible to the rest of us. Beautiful. I mean, it's really like the power of art to evoke feeling, right? That's from your words to her work. That's really what all artists are trying, I think, at their core to do, right? Communicate what's inside their heads in some way to somebody else's head. It's really cool <laughs> when you think about it. I know that's ridiculous, but... Yeah, yeah. Sort of a message in a bottle. Yes. It goes out there and the the artist can't be sure where it will land, but the person who picks up the bottle will be the person for whom the picture was intended. And I love that you mentioned the structure. I'm just holding up the book again, and I love how everything is in a day. That's so great. I mean, when you talk about like getting a slice of life of somebody's career... To do it in such a creative way is is amazing. I mean, there's so many ways you could have approached her life, right? Like a bazillion yes. ways. I'm sure you debated <laughs> how to do it, but this is so great. And it just shows her growth as like an artist and over time. And I don't know, that's just a great tactic. I love it. Well, thank you, Zibi. You know what? I didn't debate it. You did it? You just knew right away? I knew right away that that's the way it would be. 
I didn't know which days. Mm -hmm. That was kind of fun to let the research dictate what might, could, and finally were the days of the book. But I, I knew that it would be these days, yes. Oh. It would be structured this on is days. my own, like, that I have to debate everything a million times. I'm just projecting how I imagined you would have done it. But <laughs> Well, in fairness to you, I think sometimes that is the way it is for any writer, right? There are different formats and the the, the right format becomes apparent only in the writing of things. So I understand that. It's just in this case, somehow it wasn't, I didn't need to go through that preparatory thinking. Yeah. I also love that this is an Upper East Side girl book as I sit here on the Upper East Side talking to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I spent a whole summer at Bennington, by the way. So I'm, oh, did you? Yes, I'm very familiar with it. And I did a whole writing program, writing and photography. Wait, this is way oh, back when, but yeah. Wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 I think Helen was such the Upper East Side person that when she did move to the Lower West Side, you know, she lived down in the West 20s when she was, when the book starts out. Uh, I think her family, I think her mother, it was, was very shocked, you know, that she would be living on the West side, the lower West side seemed impossibly bohemian. Yes. I sublet an apartment in the meatpacking district when it was like just coming up a little bit South of that, but on the West side and my mother on the Upper East side had the same exact reaction. (laughs) So anyway, so what, what is coming next for you now? You have this beautiful book out in in the world. Who are you, are you going to profile a different artist next or what's your plan? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm contemplating what my next book will be. I'm writing a very different book right now, which is about America in the age of Andrew Jackson, actually. Oh, I just was doing that with my daughter. Her test is on Thursday. You're literally, I'm like deep in Andrew Jackson time. Wow. What What grade is your daughter? Seventh grade. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's about America in the 1830s and it's kind of the opposite of the Frankenthaler book in the sense that it's told from the vantage of many, many people known and unknown from that time. So I mentioned Andrew Jackson because he's a good place marker for that era, the 1830s, but it's actually a different kind of writerly challenge where it's everyone from farmers, slaves, poets, painters, politicians, and so on. So I'm, I'm enjoying that a lot. Hmm, wow. We'll have to read that one. Now I feel like mm. I am so clear on exactly what was going on at that time, whereas perhaps had I not brushed up on it over the weekend, I wouldn't have been. Well, yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, one writes, I don't know if this is true for you, but it must be in some way that one writes to learn, right? Yeah. I think writing about Helen, I don't know, there's this curious way that one writes from a position of feeling that one already has, as I was talking about, but at the same time, one discovers more the nature of that feeling by virtue of the writing. And I've been thinking about the Helen book now that in ways I didn't really appreciate when I was writing it, it was a kind of coming into being of my own feelings about Helen by virtue of writing the book, if that makes sense. Like, not, not in a way that that really I could turn into formulae and, you know, simple descriptive sentences because I don't really believe in that. You know, I don't, I tell my students here, for example, that they should avoid the, the phrase 
my book is about, you know, this artist and so on, because that word about, though it's understandable why people use it, implies a, you know, like the art is over there. And I, I say instead, you know, you should say, I write with the artist. And although the with is complicated because one doesn't want to be sort of just the publicist, as it were, for the artist, right? That's not what it's about. The with I take to mean has to do with kindred feeling, like wanting to inhabit the artist's fantasy and to write from that perspective, as opposed to distancing it and turning that fantasy, that whole imaginative life into kind of an object, which, you know, I don't know, is is limiting, I think. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yes, I guess so. (laughs) Write about what moves you. That's one thing. Yeah. And discover what it is that moves you by writing. And often I think that means instead of going to a museum and feeling honor bound to look at all 1000 paintings, each one for two seconds, instead pick one thing that moves you, maybe by an artist you know you want to look at, maybe maybe by someone you've never heard of, whatever it is. It might be like a painting of a meadow with a stream running through it of a kind that even as you stand there for 5, 10, 15 minutes, a whole hour, or even for just 30 seconds before your friend drags you off to get an espresso, it stays in your mind and then it becomes the basis, the kernel for some idea. And maybe it has to do with a memory you have. Maybe it has to do with some movie you saw once that featured a similar scene. Who knows? But I would say right from that moment, from that stream, in that field, and that stream is a kind of source for all that one has to give. So I'm, I guess, a believer in the oak growing from the acorn. Beautiful. Great. Well, thank you for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Alexander, thank you for this intimate look into Helen's life and her art, which I will never look at quite the same way again. And thank you for this conversation. You're very welcome. Thank you, Zibi. Okay, take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.